Welcome to the Am I Called podcast. Am I Called is a ministry that exists to help men find their call and to help pastors find called men. For more information and resources, visit amicalled.com. Now, here's your host, Dave Harvey. Afternoon, folks. Welcome back to the Am I Called podcast. I'm your host, Dave Harvey, and it's sunny and 92 here in Tallahassee, Florida. In fact, just this week, Lance Olam, who is the guy who runs our our Midtown campus, sent us a screenshot of the temperature in North Dakota, where he grew up, and it was 32 degrees with snow. So if we have any listeners from North Dakota, you have our sympathy. But enough about weather, because joining us today is Randy Alcorn. Now, Randy is the husband to Nancy, grandfather of five, and a man who loves the church. But Randy Alcorn is probably best known as a prolific author. This is a guy who's written widely in categories of both fiction and nonfiction. So his his fiction works, for instance, include Deadline and, and Dominion, and he's got, well, just many nonfiction works on pro-life themes and daily devotionals on purity and and on suffering. And in fact, Randy wrote a book called Money, Possessions, and Eternity that is so surgical, so transformational that uh, recently when I was at a men's retreat, I, I dared the men to buy it and read it. And uh, I actually dare our listeners to do that as well because you'll have a great experience with it. Randy's also the director of Eternal Perspectives Ministry and his writing consistently through that ministry as well. And Randy, it's just been too long since we've talked. It's great to have you join us today. It's great to be with you, Dave. Just uh, kind of a blast from the past uh, talking with you. We spent some time together, well, fear amount, a couple of decades ago <laughs> and uh, have touched base a few times since, but it's, it's great to connect with you. Now, those are great memories for me. Now, Randy, my, my first exposure to you and to your ministry was, I think it was an article that I read, and this this had to be 25 years ago, and I think it was in the Discipleship Journal, where you told the story of being at a place where you had to step out of pastoral ministry. And the irony of that is that some of our listeners are guys who are looking to get into pastoral ministry, but you stepped out of it, and you did it for reasons of of conscience, and that's that's basically how Eternal Perspectives Ministry came into being. So, why don't you tell us that story and tell tell our listeners that story? Well, I was a, a pastor. We we planted a church in uh, 1977 uh, here in uh, Gresham, Oregon. Actually, we ended up relocating to uh, a property that is in the town of Boring, Oregon. So um, we were boring pastors, and there's a boring pastors fellowship and, <laughs> and all of that. But anyway, um, myself and, and Stu Weber were the original pastors of this church and uh, was there 13, 14 years. Things were going great. We were growing. And, you know, when you, when you plant a church, everything's really, really hard at first. And then after a while, you got staff, you got help, and you can kind of... Uh, maybe sometimes uh, settle in uh, a bit. Well, right when we had settled in, uh, the Lord just laid on my heart um, the, the, a sense of calling to get more involved in pro-life work. We had opened our home to uh, pregnant 
girl who had been kicked out of her uh, home, and we helped her place her child for adoption into a Christian home. We had the joy of seeing that girl come to faith in Christ while she was with us. I uh, was on the board of the first crisis pregnancy center in the Pacific Northwest uh, in the, the mid 80s, back when there were only 15 uh, crisis pregnancy centers in the country, now often called pregnancy resource centers, what's now CareNet, what then was Christian Action Council. And so I was involved in this cause, but the Lord laid it on my heart to um, do the civil disobedience that was known as rescuing, and it happened in various parts of the country. Um, I was one of a, a handful of pastors in this area and then a number of lay people who were involved uh, in uh, this peaceful, nonviolent, civil disobedience, standing in front of the doors of abortion clinics, um, somewhat patterned after the civil rights movement in terms of you say that, you know, a uh, black person can't eat at this lunch counter or a white person shouldn't go over there because that's the black bathroom and, you know, all of that. But the equivalent with abortion, except that it's literally the killing of children, and so we felt we were the last line of defense. And we wanted to make a public statement, not only to save the children that day to prevent abortions uh, from happening, but also uh, to speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves, as uh, Proverbs states. And this was, of course, a nonviolent civil disobedience. Exactly. Yeah, nonviolent. None of the, you know, that we had a very strict code of conduct. Uh, nobody could reach out and even touch anyone, put their hand on a shoulder or an arm. Uh, but we were standing there locking arms in front of the doorway as a, a symbol of solidarity with the unborn, but also um, to effectively um, shut down the clinic for the time we were there. So as a result of this, of course, um, we were arrested. And I think of, of the nine times that year that I was involved in this, I was uh, arrested maybe seven of those nine times. And so go to jail and, um, you know, it's usually just a holding tank and then you're released later that day, but then later was sentenced to just a few days uh, in jail at the, at the Multnomah County Courthouse in downtown Portland. Now, this was going on in other parts of the country, but, uh, you know, many of those were Bible Belt uh, type of places. And uh, if there's one thing that Portland, Oregon is not, it is the Bible Belt. Uh, and so the judges that we would stand uh, in front of were just outraged, and the newspaper coverage was just, I mean, literally making up how we would scream and yell and push, and, and, and I remember one time my daughter was reading this in the newspaper, and she was only 12 years old at the time, and she, I said, Karina, read this account, because you were actually there, because our kids sometimes would come, and, and this particular time she hadn't. She witnessed the entire thing, and then she read what the paper said we had done, with yelling and screaming and pushing and shoving, and she started crying. Mm. And she says, Dad, I was there. None of this happened. I was there. I said, yep. Yeah. I said, welcome to the world. Yeah, and, of and early people. education yeah. of the media. Yeah, exactly. People see through their eyes. So anyway, we had a number of lawsuits come our direction. Then finally, they came to our church uh, to garnish my wages. And what that meant was if I continued in pastoral ministry each month, 25% uh, of my income from the church would go to an abortion clinic because by then they had won 
uh, various lawsuits for financial amounts. Uh, there was actually uh, two years after I resigned, they, there was a big case where we were, we were in court for 30 days, and they brought what was then, and I think still is, the largest judgment ever against a, a group of peaceful, nonviolent uh, protesters, uh, and, and that was for 8.2 million dollars, which I used to say to everybody, that's more than I make as a pastor in a year. But <laughs> anyway, um, you know, so here was this judgment against us, and um, it was, it just required, uh, even before that, when they came to garnish my wages, it just re- required a, a decision. If I was going to stay on as a pastor, then I would subject my church to define a court order on the one hand to pay these wages or to write out a monthly check to an abortion clinic, both of which were just an impossible situation. I so the court so. wasn't simply uh, collecting money, but they were, they, they were rerouting the money that you would give to the abortion clinic. Uh, right, exactly. They, they, the, the money would go not to the court, but by court order would go to the abortion clinic, and uh, that that was you know suing us, and that this judgment was uh, you know against. So I resigned as a pastor, and probably Dave, if you had asked me even two months before, what do you think you'll be doing thirty years from now? I would have said, I think, as far as I know, I'll still be a a pastor, for sure, and I would have assumed at this church, Good Shepherd Community Church, and suddenly everything changed. Uh, I mean, we knew that there were the possibilities of different things that would happen, but it came down differently than we anticipated, and suddenly, within a couple of days' time, I had resigned, stepped off uh, the church um, staff, uh, no longer a pastor, by then, we had grown quite a bit and had fairly large pastoral staff, and and these were my closest friends, and so I had to move away from that, and I stepped off as an elder because it was very complicated for my name and picture to be in the newspapers and going to jail and having court issues and all of that while I was still a pastor, and so it just seemed best for me to step off the elders as well. Now, we're still part of that same church today. Uh, and never left the church. Uh, we're tempted to leave. You know, we had a number of people who took issue with us, understandably. Um, I get that, you know, but there's times in your life when you do something and you know God wants you to do it, but it's just really impossible to explain to people. It makes no sense to them. You know, people would say, are you even thinking of your children? Are you? I mean, what effect is this going to have on your daughters? They could take take your house, your daughters won't be able to afford to go to the church school anymore, this is going to happen, that's good, because the other part of the story is I could, I could make no more than minimum wage, because under Oregon law, minimum wage is considered subsistence, so you, you, you can't garnish from minimum wage, but you can take one quarter the abortion clinic could take one quarter of everything that was above minimum wage. So we started a ministry called Eternal Perspective Ministries, and I was paid minimum wage. Now, my wife also worked with the ministry. She was paid the same amount I was paid. We did fine. So it was not like some huge crisis for us. But what we did was we took 100% of the royalties. Well, we did this before because we saw this coming. We decided, you know what, we're giving away most of the royalties to my books anyway. Let's give away 100% of the wages um, 
you know, from, I mean, the royalties uh, from the books. And then let's just irrevocably give it to uh, our ministry, and then our ministry will give away 100% of it. And we operated that way for many years, and we still give 90%. 100% still all goes to ministry, but 10% uh, goes to help fund our own ministry because now we've got 10 staff members. But the other 90%, uh, goes to support missions, famine relief, and God's work all over the the world. So it was one of the, it was a Genesis fifty twenty situation. They intended it for evil, but God intended it for good. Wow! So, so that means that years ago, you know, because of the act of the court, you were consigned to live uh, with a formal wage, no more than minimum wage, which means that your entire last two and a half, perhaps three decades, has been spent just trusting God to supply income, right? I mean, you've right. got two um, daughters, you've, a, got, you know, you've got a house, you know, th- those kind right. of bills have to be paid. H- how did that happen? How, in what ways did you see God move? Yeah, tell us about that. Yeah, one of the things was um, we had uh, just, just uh, I, uh, my book that you mentioned, Money, Possessions, and Eternity, came out in the spring of 1989. Okay, that was the same year. It was later that year when I first uh, went down and did the um, civil disobedience, and it was almost exactly one year to the day after that book came out that I had to step out of pastoral ministry, was going to be paid minimum wage. And again, my wife was paid the same amount I was. So effectively, let's, we had double minimum wage is what you know, we were living on, which wasn't a lot, but it was certainly enough. And the thing that was remarkable was we had several years earlier to determine that we were going to accelerate paying off our uh, mortgage. So we ended up paying off our 30-year mortgage in a period of 16 years, and we made the last payment uh, three weeks before I had before they came to garnish our wages. So oh, we my. we now had no house payment to pay for the I mean for wow. the first time ever since we bought our house we had no house payment. Now, obviously, you have other expenses in life, but the, nonetheless. Um, uh, and our kids, we were looking at it, and we're going, wow, this is going to be tough when our kids go to college if they make that choice. Um, you know, uh, how, how is that going to happen? And over the years, it was just remarkable. I still, I tell people this because they say, how did you send one daughter all the way through uh, the Master's College, a Christian liberal arts college, um, that is not cheap, and, and none of them actually are cheap, um, and uh, and then the other daughter, and you helped her through college. How could you possibly have done that? And I, and I just say it doesn't add up. I, I can't even explain it. Yeah, they had lots of scholarships and this and that and the other thing, but no debt. Uh, we've never had any debt since we paid off our mortgage, and uh, our kids didn't have any student loans. You know, none of that. And we're you know we're grateful, but again, uh, you know, we look at it and it seemed like a sacrifice. Uh, to so many people, but to us, we've been able to go all over the world, uh, be with God's people, see beautiful places, stay beautiful places as part of missions trips and speaking to you know people. And sometimes we'll stay a few extra days on our own dime. And you know what? We have not been deprived at mm. all. 
Well, you know, Randy, it's been so long since I've heard that story. I mean, just hearing it again affects me. It, um, the the reality of your willingness to make sacrifices, and I know they don't consider or that they don't seem or you don't consider them as sacrifices right now, but but really sacrifices for the church. You know, so many men are making sacrifices to get into pastoral ministry. You made a sacrifice to get out of it uh, because that's what was best for the church. And, uh, you know, it's, I think part of, the, part of the joy of reading Money, Possessions, and Eternity is, is recognizing the, you know, the integrity of your own example, the substance of your own experience. And, uh, you know, I just remember the first time that I read it, we, we urged our entire church to buy it. We had our small groups going through it. And um, one of the things that was so captivating about the book was how you how you set the discussion of money against the backdrop of of heaven, and and then over the years you've written a number of other books on the on the subject of heaven. So you know, let's talk about that for a second. What, why have you chosen to give so much time and thought to the subject of of heaven? Well, I think that Scripture presents the afterlife, um, the present heaven, where we. Those of us who know Jesus, where we go uh, when we die, um, Paul says, you know, to be with Christ is better by far to die and be with him. Uh, but then it gives that larger picture of his plan of redemption that includes, uh, that is actually centered on the new heavens and the new earth. So Second Peter 3.13 says, um, therefore, in light of the things that Peter has been saying, therefore... We look forward to a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. He goes on to say, therefore, what sort of people ought you to be in terms of life and godliness? In other words, an eternal perspective um, should radically affect the way we live. And one of the ways that I have often talked about it, and others have too, is to talk about the dot and the line, that, you know, this present life is a dot, and from that dot extends a line that goes out for eternity. The dot begins, it ends, it's brief. Um, But if we're smart, we're not going to live in the dot for the dot. As we live in the dot, we're going to live for the line, because the line is what's going to last. And that really was what Jesus was saying. And in Matthew 6, with, you know, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, not treasures on earth. God has no problem with us storing up treasures. He wants us to store up treasures. He just says, stop storing them up in the wrong place where they're not going to last, and start storing them up in the right place where they are going to last. So to me, um, the reality of heaven and the new earth is not just what fueled the minds and lives of believers for many centuries, including the Puritans. I mean, you read their stuff, uh, it's just remarkable how uh, heaven, the new earth, the life to come was the reference point, and it, it infused them with present perspective and present joy. Their lives were uh, happy in relationship to how much thought they gave to the eternal 
realities, not just the invisible realities that are true right now, though that is certainly part of it. We've been raised with Christ. We're to set our minds in heaven where Christ is seated at the right hand of God, Colossians 1, or 3, 1 and 2. But to think in terms of God's plan that goes from Eden to the new earth and that Satan didn't thwart God's plan, we live now in the middle of the story. And if we keep in mind the beginning, Eden, and the end that will never end, the new earth, the new heavens and the new earth, then that perspective gives definition to and meaning to the present because we're actually in the middle of the story. Beginnings of stories, stories start a certain way. Often things are pretty calm at the beginning of a story, not always, but uh, then at the end of the, st- in the middle of the story, everything goes wrong. And then there's the end of the story. And the end of the story is where there's some, in many stories, uh, and certainly in God's Word, a great resolution. That's the great redemptive story. So when you live in the middle, you need to be able to look back at what was and especially look forward to what will be. So to me, I just think it's it's vital. Yeah, you know, I think uh, what, what, what's curious to me is, is I think about that passage that God has said eternity in the hearts of man. And I, I, yes. it seems like God did that for you in a, in a particular way, in a specific way. Um, uh, you know, when I, when, when I was a teenager and I thought about heaven, I thought it was only boring and snoring because um, it was just this worship environment that I couldn't dial into in any way. And, right. and I think in some ways that, you know, that typifies how a lot of people view heaven. But there was something that obviously happened in your life or in your experience or in your theology where, where, where God set eternity in, in your heart or before you in a specific way. And how would you describe what that is? Was there an experience? What, what exactly happened there? Yeah, there were actually a couple of things that, that happened, Dave. One was uh, the death of my mother. Um, I had the joy of leading my mom to faith in Christ. I grew up in an unbelieving home. I came to Christ when I was in high school. Uh, when I was a junior in high school, I was able to lead my mom to faith in Christ, um, baptized her at our church. It was just a, a very powerful thing. And she was um, just truly the most godly person. In such a short period of time, she grew so much in her faith in Christ, and she taught fourth grade uh, Sunday school uh, girls and oh my gosh, she poured her life into them. She would spend 15 to 20 hours a week preparing for her class, calling the girls, visiting the girls, talking with them and sometimes with their mom there and, and just, just talking about life and following Jesus. And um, Anyway, then we had our first daughter, and every Monday uh, my mom would watch our, our daughter Karina, and uh, then we had our second daughter Angela, and right about when Angie was born, mom started getting very sick, and then she was diagnosed with a terminal cancer, and in a very short period of time, she was gone and with Jesus. But in the last 30 days of her life, she was home at my, my parents' home, and there were three women in our church who volunteered to be with mom virtually day and night. They were all three nurses and trained nurses and, um, you know, they knew what to do. And my dad, who was not a believer, 
who was extremely hostile to the gospel, was blown away that these three women would come over in shifts and care for my mom. Then, of course, I'd come over and visit, and every time that I was with my mom, almost every day, I would read to her from Revelation 21 and 22. Um, and as I was reading that, Dave, it 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 just hit me. Uh, you know, it's not just... A, when you read a passage once, and even you're doing a Bible read-through, you read through it, and you move on, you know? Now, arguably, you end when you're in Revelation 21 and 22, but then, you, you know, the devotions, you move on to something else your next day. But it was such a strange experience to read and reread aloud the same passage. And what struck me was how tangible and substantial it was. It was talking about a city with walls and streets, and the walls were uh, had these precious gems, which what's harder and heavier and more substantial than precious metals and gems and, and, and all of this stuff. And then it would talk about the river um, flowing from, uh, you know, the, the center of the city from the throne, the tree of life growing on both sides of the river. So, okay, this is the tree of life, like from Genesis. Was that a real tree? Sure. Is this real? Well, there's every reason to believe it is. It's, it's called a new earth, not a non-earth. It's an earth. And, and then the people are... Resurrected people, we know that. We're going to have resurrected bodies. We're going to eat and drink. And Jesus said that. You know, they'll come from the east and the west, and they'll sit down at the table with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. All of this substance. I mean, Jesus ate in his resurrection body. He actually cooked fish for the disciples. He ate with them. And when he ate, it didn't drop down to the ground because he wasn't a ghost. You know, it, it, it was a real situation. He says, a spirit doesn't have flesh and bones as mm. I have. Touch me, feel me, see what I am, you know. And, and anyway, I, I was seeing all that. Some of what I just quoted, obviously, is from the Gospels. But, it, but the environment, where will those new bodies live? Well, they will live on a new earth. These new bodies aren't going to float up in the clouds in the angelic realm. You know, substantial physical things don't just float forever. They have solid ground to stand on. God is going to renew the universe. God is going to renew the earth. Well, this struck me in a way that had never hit me before when I'm reading all this to my mom. And I'm thinking about, I'm doing it because I want my mom to hear the word of God. Yeah and to anticipate what awaits us all in the resurrection. And God has a different intention in, in your heart in that experience. Right. And so meanwhile, he's actually teaching me. And then when my mom died and was with the Lord, I thought, okay, I want to know about where she is right now, the present heaven. And I also want to know about where we will all live forever, which are actually two different things. And we often think of heaven as just one place, at one time, the same, like heaven never will change. Well, in fact, heaven is the very presence of God. It's the place where God's throne is. But we're told in Revelation 21 that God, in, in verse 3 of Revelation 21, three times uses the word with, where it says God will come down and live with his people. He will be with them and be their God 
on this new earth. So what what struck me was, as I studied then in, in years to come and then ultimately culminated in writing my book, Heaven, about 11 or 12 years ago, um, and, and I had written on heaven in my novels and in shorter books and all of that even before then. But what what occurred to me was I had always thought of, since I'd become a believer, as heaven as us going up to live with God in his place. Now, that's true. When we die, we do go up to live with God in his place, the, what, what's called the intermediate heaven or the present heaven. Uh, but the ultimate truth is that God will come down to live with us in our place, the place he has made for us, mm. the new earth. And that's what we're told where the throne of God will be on the new earth and God will come down and dwell with his people. And that is revolutionary, Dave, because I have talked with so many people who said, you know, well, the thing you said about, gosh, it just seems like, isn't that going to be boring? And and even it seems like, isn't, isn't it going to be tedious? And Well, an angelic existence uh, floating around disembodied, it's, it's just not what we were made for. We, God, you see this in, in Genesis 2 where he creates us, you know, where you have uh, body and spirit together. He breathes into Adam's body the breath of life. And it, the body and spirit are to coexist, and that's the great promise of the resurrection. And Paul, in 1 Corinthians 15, says, if the dead are not raised, that is, if we merely remain disembodied spirits, we are of all men most to be pitied. The Greek ideal of the disembodied Platonic you know, idea of the disembodied spirit was not ideal at all in Scripture. It's something very, very different. God renewing the whole cosmos and us being part of it and being with him and with each other forever. You know, one of the things I love about your story is how, you know, it, at the center of it, it 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 embodies the very nature of ministry itself. In other words, you're, you know, you're sitting there with the Bible open on your lap and you're reading Revelation 20 and 21 to your mom and you're doing it as a service to her, to love her, to bring God's word to her at a key moment, at a defining moment, only to find that God has his own agenda that includes you and that the work, the word of God is not simply at work upon your mother, but upon you. And that's what ministry is. That's us before the word of God, preparing the word of God for others, only to discover that God has an agenda for us as well. Right. Randy, let's talk for a second about your fiction works because, you know, these this heaven theme that we're talking about here is it finds its way into a number of your of your fiction works as well. And you know, I I remember hearing a story of of uh, of when when President Lincoln met uh, Harriet Beecher Stowe and 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 said to her that that line of oh, so you're you know you're the little lady that started this war, huh? And uh, the the point being that that fiction can impact us for change and in in kind of a backdoor way in a way that nonfiction can't and and I, I assume that was the idea that you had in mind in some of what you were trying to do so in why don't you talk about you know in what ways your fiction writing was designed to do that well I really what you said is is very true Dave and I I really believed 
that many people can be reached through fiction that will not be reached through nonfiction. And there's, there's several reasons for this. primary one is that there are a lot of people who only read nonfiction and not fiction, but there are a huge number of people who almost everything they read is fiction. And I remember this hitting me one time when I was off speaking somewhere and I was coming back. Uh, I was on an airplane and I walked back to use the bathroom. And as I walked back, I just looked at what is everybody reading? Well, I'll bet you, and, and that was in the days before you know tablets and Kindle and you know all of that, but I could see the books and I could see the titles and recognize many of the authors. And I, I would easily, 90% of the people reading on that plane were reading fiction. And there was somebody reading in virtually every row, and it was almost always a popular novel. Mm. Or maybe not a popular novel, just a novel. But I, you, know, you, you could just easily tell what's a novel and what's, what's nonfiction. And it just struck me that when people are kind of, they want to relax, they're kind of away... They, and even when they're home, many of them curl up under a blanket by the fireplace, you know, whatever, and read a great story. Maybe not a great story, but a story. Read a novel. And I thought, wow, some of these people would never read my nonfiction books, but I wonder if I could write a story. And and I ended up, my first uh, novel, my first couple of, uh, of novels were uh, murder mysteries and Lots of people read murder mysteries, and and I'd always enjoyed Sherlock Holmes and various murder mysteries and things that I'd read along the way, detective-type stories, so I thought, why not try to do that? And it's actually the first, um, I remember the, my, uh, my publisher wanted me to sign a contract, and I said, I will not sign a contract on this book. I'm writing it, but I'm not going to sign a contract because my fear is it might not be any good, and then you might publish it anyway. And so I, I want to be able to make the call on this myself. And I finally felt like, you know, it's not, this is not Hemingway, but it is, you know, going to, I think it can make a difference. And so the novel Deadline was published. And by the way, you know, I mentioned before about committing to give away 100% of the royalties uh, on, my, um, on my books, not to, for Nancy and I not to keep any of that. And that's been true to this day. Um, but uh, what, what I didn't say was at the time I did that, I was getting, you know, fair royalties on several of my books, but, you know, not that big of a thing. And then suddenly after making that decision, it was within a year that all of a sudden my books were on bestsellers list. Mm. And then the novel Deadline was on the bestsellers list, Christian fiction bestsellers list, for like two years. And it was crazy how people responded. And then I followed up with the novel Dominion and Edge of Eternity, and ultimately I wrote Safely Home and Lord Falgren's Letters, Ishbane Conspiracy. I wrote uh, Courageous that corresponds to the movie uh, Courageous and a few other things. And I've even written a graphic novel, you know, the long comic book style called Eternity that's based on The Rich Man and Lazarus. And, and I and actually just finished one on the Apostle Paul. It'll be out actually next month. Um, anyway, so all of the fiction writing that I've done has, 
it has amazed me because it's like God reaches a very different audience. For instance, with the graphic novels, he's reaching uh, young people, who a number of whom don't read conventional books. They just don't. They read graphic novels. And so it might be the Marvel Comics group or DC or it might be the manga or manga, you know, Japanese comics, the, you know, whatever they read. Um, but it's just so fun to reach people, which was my goal from the beginning, reach people who otherwise wouldn't be reading my books. Hmm. Have you ever been on a flight and walked back to the restroom and seen somebody reading one of your books, Randy? I have, uh, just a couple of times. But one of the funniest stories was I was on a plane somewhere. I think it was going from Chicago to someplace. It might have been back to Portland. I'm not sure. But there's a guy sitting next to me. and uh, There was just, you know, uh, two seats, so there, there was nobody in between us and uh, no blank seat. We were right next to each other. And this guy looks at me, and we're talking, and I ask him what he does. And he tells me, and then he asks me what I do, and I, I tell him I'm a writer. And uh, he says, oh, really? And then he, he kind of was embarrassed. He even turned a little bit red. He says, you know what? I graduated from college, and in all those years, and this guy's probably in his at least mid-40s, maybe 50, and he said, all those years since college, I've only read one book. And, you know, it's like he just gave up reading books. He read what he had to in college, and then he was done. And and I looked at him, and I said, okay, so what is the one book you've read? I was hoping he would say the Bible. Uh Uh, He didn't. He says, well, he says, you know, I don't remember the name of it, but I remember the plot. There were these three guys, and there was a car accident, and they were close friends. They'd been in Vietnam together, all of this kind of stuff. And finally, I looked at him and said, by any chance, was the name of that novel Deadline? He says, yes, yeah, have you read it? And so I said, well, you're not going to believe this. Not only have I read it, but I wrote it. And then I told him my name, and he remembered my name, with any, and he looks at me and says, what are the chances? Oh and I said, well, actually, I think the chances are pretty much zero. Yeah. And I, this is what I think of as a divine appointment. So yes, I explained to him that concept, that God puts people next to each other in planes and other places. Because, I mean, really, seriously, humanly speaking, if he's read one book, it's yeah, going to uh, be a John Grisham novel, or it's going to be Stephen King, or it's going to be, uh, you know, Tom Clancy or whoever. It's certainly not going to be my book deadline. So wow. it was great. I was able to share the gospel with him. And, and, oh, I'm and sure you had his book. attention. <laughs> yeah, yeah, because he couldn't get over it. He actually, I think at first he honestly thought I, I, I was trying yeah, to put him on because yeah. it, just, it was just too unbelievable. Now, I, I remember reading uh, Safely Home, which is a story about, I mean, the subtext is, is the suffering in the underground church in China. Do you have any stories, Randy, and I'll make this my last question, but do you have any stories about how that book uh, changed perspectives on the suffering of the underground church or how it, how it served in, in that way? Yeah, it's, it's just been remarkable, Dave, the number of people we have heard from, uh, the number of emails we get, the number of posts on our social media. People will just come into Facebook page or Twitter or whatever it is and just say, hey, I read Safely Home. 
it changed my life, it drew me closer to Christ. And my favorite stories are the people who have been moved to go into missions to China. Last week, I uh, got a, a letter from a girl who uh, read the, the novel in Dutch. And uh, she's from the Netherlands, mm. and she said she read that novel, and she just was sure that God was leading her to ministry in China. She's in a Bible college right now. She's done a short-term trip to China. And then when she's done with Bible college, her goal is to head over to China as a missionary. But one of the other remarkable ones that in some ways is, is similar was years ago, I was in an airport where I had a connection and I, I often bring uh, my books and booklets along with me to give away to people on planes and in airports and wherever I bump into. And just, just again, I just pray, God, give me these divine appointments. Well, I was really, I was late for a connection. I was rushing along, as you know you do through an airport. Sometimes you're just dragging your bag behind you and you are just running. And all of a sudden, I see a girl who's reading something, and I don't even really know what she's reading. It looked like, well, it could be a Bible. I'm not sure. But she's probably 30 feet away from me and not really on my uh, path. She's there, and I just, she's probably um, early 20s, and I just felt God prompting me, you've got to go over and give a book to that girl. Mm. So I go over, I look in my briefcase, and the only thing I had left in it was a copy of Safely Home, which I normally don't carry with me because it's a good-sized book. And I, I carry smaller books because you can carry more of them. They're just you know, easy to, easier to carry and, and give away. So I, I reach in the bag, and I look at this girl, and I say, hey, don't even have time to stop and talk. I just feel like God wants me to give you this book. It's a book I wrote. Here you go. Best wishes. God bless you or whatever. And she, she looks up at me. She smiles, and she says, thanks. So then I run on. Okay, so you know how it goes. You, you have a connection with someone, and you pray for them for the next week or whatever, but then you move on, you know, because there's new people you meet, and you're praying for them for a while. I had not thought about this girl for years until maybe six years ago now, five years ago. I get an email. She's, this email comes from China. Um, this is a woman speaking in English saying, you probably don't even remember this, but years ago in such and such airport, you were running by with your bag to you know, catch a plane, and you looked over at me, and you came over, and you brought me this book called Safely Home, gave it to me. She said, I just want you to know that as a result of reading that book, I started studying Mandarin Chinese. I have now been a missionary in China for, well, at the time it was four years. So maybe this was four or five years ago when she connected me because it's only been out 10 years, I think. But anyway, and she says, so I, uh, I, I, I went over to China. She says, I'm now serving here full-time, working with um, you know house churches. And then her last sentence was, I wanted to write and thank you because I have never known such joy. Hmm. And, and I thought, okay, here again is somebody, oh, look at the great sacrifices she's making. And to her, it's just joy. Wow. And, and that's where you think, 
for every story, and, and this doesn't just apply to books that we write, it applies to things we say to somebody in the market, you know, um, maybe it's a checker, and maybe it's a kind word, give them a little booklet, uh, say God bless you, say something about the Lord, uh, invite them to church, I don't know, whatever it is. And often we have no clue how strategic that may be in someone's life. And these are the things where at the judgment seat of Christ, uh, not at the judgment seat as much as just, just in the banquets, in the ages to come, where I think Christ will be in charge of the seating arrangements and we'll be sitting next to people. And on our right may be somebody where we say, thank you so much, Charles Spurgeon, for the difference you made in mm-hmm. my life. C.S. Lewis, A.W. Tozer, you know, all of these people who wrote these great books that affected my life. And then turn and look at the person left, and then they're going to say to us something like, thank you so much for your prayers, for sending that money and your church offering that planted churches and translated the Bible into our language, that kept my children alive with food and vaccinations and clean water. Um, We're not going to know the whole story until then. Hmm. Randy, that is an inspiring visual, and an extraordinary story. My goodness. I, uh, it, I mean, it gave me chills just to, just to hear how God used that, that what seeming, seemingly was a random meeting to, the, to affect that girl and take her to China and inspire her to serve as a missionary. So, my friend, I I am so grateful to God for your life and for your example and for your writings and your ministry and and certainly for your willingness to join us today for the Am I Called podcast. Thanks for being with us, Randy. Hey, it's been a pleasure, Dave. Good to talk with you again. Folks, if you've enjoyed this podcast, I just want to remind you that there are plenty of other podcasts that we've done with leaders, pastors, thinkers, and they're all at amicall.com. So you can log in anytime and you can subscribe or, or just benefit from all the free material made available to serve folks just like you. This is Dave Harvey. Thanks for joining us at the Am I Called podcast. Thank you for listening to the Am I Called podcast, which was brought to you today by Four Oaks Community Church in Tallahassee, Florida. For more articles, interviews, and resources on calling and pastoral ministry, visit micalled.com.